Good morning. It's good to see you all here uh, today. We, I, you know, the last few weeks of doing this, and uh, I think I may have said it last week, I, I do not take for granted opportunities to meet together. And, and uh, what a great thing we have with the technology for those of you that get to watch online. Uh, but it is, there, there's no replacing meeting together. Um, you know, we do what we got to do in the current circumstances, but there's no replacing meeting together. Uh, and so I, I love it. So the past helps us understand the present. In many cases, we can learn from the past and, and use that information to help us interpret what's going on in our current circumstances. So let me give you an example. Uh, it should not be surprising. I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna confess this in front of God and everybody and everybody watching online right now. Uh, I have lost a step athletically. I, I'll admit it. Uh, so I'm used to playing basketball one way, just fast. Get the ball out of the net and let's go. My high school coaches would make fun of me for not playing defense because if I let them get a layup really fast, that means I can get the ball and go hit a three. Three is more than two. Uh, but I, I, I enjoy really playing fast, um, but we've been playing up here for the last couple of years and, you know, not during the pandemic, nobody panic here. Uh, but, uh, what I've noticed is that the younger guys have started to move faster than me. And when did I start saying younger guys anyway? <laughs> when did that happen? Uh, but it should not be surprising. There comes a point at which your athleticism, uh, n- no longer allows you to win the game. There comes a point when you've got to use your brain. You've got to use a little force. Uh, I learned that move from one of our elders. I won't tell you his name, but it rhymes with Schmandy Moens. <laughs> uh, but at some point, it happens to everybody. Nobody's special. Old man basketball exists for a reason. I've seen it with others and there comes a time look there comes a time when the bulls don't want you anymore and you have to go play for the wizards do you understand what i'm saying um the past helps us understand our present it should not be surprising to me when i uh, reach into the back seat of my car to get my backpack and it throws my back out for three weeks that should not be surprising to me um the past helps us. I've seen it happen with other people, you know, and so I apply that to myself. It, myself, it should not be surprising to me when I go to the doctor uh, for a regular checkup. I got this weird thing on my leg, and I show him. He's like, "Well, yeah. Now that you're older, you're going to start getting those." I should not be surprised. I'm highly offended, but I should not be surprised when the doctor tells me that because this happens. You've seen it happen with other people. You can apply it to your own circumstances. The past helps me interpret my present. Now, the same is true for what we know about God. We have seen God act in certain ways in the past. And so we can come to expect him to act a certain way in our present. And so let me show you what I mean. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4. We're going to be in Jonah very very briefly this, this morning. You can turn to Jonah. You have probably 
heard the story of Jonah before, and if not, you've at least heard Jonah and the whale referenced. So the story goes like this. Jonah was a prophet in Israel. And, and you can read, there's a reference to Jonah in actually 2 Kings. You can go find him there. But he's, he's a prophet to Israel. But, but one day the Lord comes to Jonah and he says, rise and go to Nineveh. That great city because the evil, its evil has come up against me. Rise and go to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was not in Israel. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, the big bad superpower in that part of the world in that day. And they were Israel's enemy. They were wicked people. They were famous for the ways that they would mistreat their enemies. They would, uh, they were famous for flaying open their enemies. They were famous for cutting off their nose and their lips and making piles of the skulls of their enemies. This is what they were famous for. And the Lord tells Jonah, the prophet of Israel, to rise and go to Nineveh. So what did Jonah, the mighty prophet of the Lord, do? What did he do? He rose and he went the opposite direction. He got on a boat to to go as far away as he could get uh, from Nineveh. Well, the Lord sends a wind that causes a storm, and they're all going to die. Jonah eventually tells the sailors, if you want to live, you've got to throw me overboard. So they throw him overboard. The sailors are saved, and famously so is Jonah. As he's sinking into the depths of the sea, the Bible tells us that the Lord appointed a fish to go swallow up Jonah. A good thing for Jonah, when the Lord appointed a fish, the fish didn't flee to Tarshish. So then the fish swallows Jonah and in the belly of the whale, the fish, he prays this prayer about the goodness of the Lord and his thankfulness for uh, being rescued. And to me, this prayer reads a little sanctimoniously because he What he has just done and what he is going to do, his attitude in the future part of Jonah. Um, But nonetheless, it's a a true prayer that he prays. And then in verse 10 of chapter 2, it says that the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomits him up on dry land. And you can decide whether or not Jonah being vomited up um, is a good or bad thing. Um, so then, so then, uh, Jonah is on dry land and at the beginning of chapter three, it says the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Can anybody testify in this room? Thank God for second chances. Uh, almost the exact same, almost the exact same words rise and go to Nineveh. And so this time Jonah Maybe learned his lesson. He rose and he did it. He went to Nineveh and he preached a sermon. And the sermon was this. Forty days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. Well, the people hear God's word. And what do they do? They repent of their sin. It says from the greatest of them to the least of them. From the king in the palace all the way down to the peasant on the side of the street. They they repent of their sin. They turn from their wicked way. And so the Lord responds. And, and verse 10 of chapter 3 says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Now, to me, this reads like a, a Billy Graham revival. 
Anybody been to a Billy Graham crusade before? That Anybody? You seen one of these things? So I was able to go see Billy Graham. I, I can think of one. It was in the 90s at the Alamo Dome. So it was Billy Graham and DC Talk for some reason. Uh, and so uh, we go to this this um, this crusade, and and he preaches the gospel so clear, so simple, and people respond. Who, who wants to give their life to Jesus? And all of these people stand up, and then and then he says, "If you want to give your life to Jesus, come forward, and we'll match you up with a counselor, and we we can get this done." Um, and so all of these people go forward. Hundreds of people are going down to the floor of the Alamo Dome. And what was the response of the people that were there? How, how did they respond? Everybody claps and cheers. It's a great thing. Look at all these people that want to turn from their sin and turn to the Lord. Well, my question is that we look at this first Billy Graham uh, crusade in the book of Jonah. And what was the response of the preacher? Look with me. Jonah chapter 4 verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Now, that's not the response you would expect. Yeah? That, that's not how you would want the, um, the, the preacher of the sermon to respond. Why is he unhappy? Well, Jonah just flat tells us in verse 2. Look, look with me, verse 2 of chapter 4. And Jonah prayed to the Lord, and he said, O Lord... Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Why did Jonah flee to Tarshish? It wasn't because he was afraid of the Ninevites. He fled Because he knew that God would forgive. He fled because he knew that God would forgive. That is a terrible reason to not want to preach. Because you knew, you know that they'll listen and they'll respond to the Lord. That, that's a terrible, terrible reaction. But that's where Jonah is at. But my question and where I want to go this morning is how did Jonah know that God would forgive? How did he know that? Did he discover it in some quiet time, personal revelation from the Lord? Like a one-on-one download? Where did he get this information? We can learn from our past to interpret our current circumstances. The past helps us understand our present, and that's what Jonah does. Do you know how Jonah knew? He read the Bible. He read his Bible. And so what I want to do is I want to show you what Jonah was looking at. And you can turn there. You can lose your spot in Jonah and turn over to Exodus 34. Now, as you're turning, I want you to think about something with me. I don't know if you've thought about this before, but there are some Old Testament books that were written later than other Old Testament books. Okay, are you with me? So some Old Testament books were written Hundreds of years before other Old Testament books were written. And so what that means is that Jonah, the prophet, had access to the first five books of the Bible. That was his Bible. The first five books of the Bible is the lens through which he viewed the world. It was the lens through which his his audience, the other people, viewed the world. So what Jonah does is he looks all the way back to Exodus... 
And he lifts out of there a quotation. And from there, the people who are reading the book of Jonah, they would see that and they would say, aha, he's referencing something important. We need to go back to where Jonah, where his mind was. We need to go back there and see what he's dealing with. Why did he pick that quotation? And I want to show you the reason why he picked it out of Exodus 34 is because uh, it's a story. There's a story that Jonah wants us to note. There's a story he wants us to consider in order to understand what's going on in his prophecy. And the story is the golden calf story. Now, you might be a little less familiar with the golden calf story as you are with Jonah's story. I'll give you the fast version. Okay, so the fast version of the golden calf story is uh, God's chosen people, the people of Israel. They are uh, they were promised to to multiply and to be this uh, incredible, large, powerful nation. And they were going to have this land. But the problem was, is that they were slaves in Egypt. And so the Lord sends Moses to pull them out of bondage and they and they uh, they escape Egypt Uh, All of the plagues and walking through the Red Sea on dry ground. And the Lord begins to lead them through the wilderness headed towards the promised land. That's kind of the book of Exodus. Well, their first major stop is Mount Sinai. Now, Mount Sinai um, is where Moses goes up the mountain and he receives the Ten Commandments. He brings the Ten Commandments down the mountain and he shows the people, we want to be God's people. We want to be his nation. We want to inherit all of these promises. Here's what he requires of us, these Ten Commandments. The people agree, we'll keep all of it. We'll do all of the things that the Lord is telling us to do. We'll keep all of the commandments. And Moses goes back up the mountain. While Moses is on the mountain, he's up. Several weeks, less than two months, but several weeks. He's up on the mountain and while he's there, the people, they don't see Moses. So they say, we don't know where Moses is. That means we don't know where the Lord is. Aaron, make us a God. We, we need a God to worship. So Aaron uh, makes a God out of this gold, this golden calf. He makes this God and the people worship it. A- Aaron holds it up and says, this is your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. The most ridiculous thing ever. But the people worship this God. They they immediately have broken the commandments they said they would keep. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods. Well, you broke that. Commandment number two, don't make an idol. Well, they broke that. They, They immediately break the covenant that they promised they would keep. And then meanwhile, on the mountain, Moses and the Lord are are getting together and, and the Lord says to Moses, I know you can't see it, but let me tell you what the people just did. He explains to Moses what has taken place. And then God says, let me alone, leave me alone, that my anger may burn hot. He says, I'm going to wipe out those people. Were there a million of them? There there was quite a few of them. You can do, do some research I'm going to wipe all of them out, and Moses, I'll start over with you. That was God's plan. That's what he intended to do. But Moses intercedes. Moses comes to the Lord, and he says, please don't do that. Please. Think about what the nations might think. If if you bring them out into the wilderness only to kill them there, please don't do that. Your, Your character is at stake. What other people think about you, Lord, is at stake. Please don't do that. 
And then in Exodus chapter 32, verse 14, listen to this. It's going to sound familiar. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of. See, Jonah brought us back to that story. He wanted us to see. The people had sinned, but the Lord relented. The people had sinned, but the Lord relented. Fast forward in the story. The, Moses isn't exactly sure that the Lord has fully forgiven them. He's not exactly sure that they're fully restored. He's kind of afraid that the Lord is going to leave them. And so he says, give me a sign. Let me Give me a sign that you're going to stay with us. Please show me your glory. And so the Lord says, okay, I'll show you my glory. I'll show you like a blunted version of my glory. I'll show you my back. And when I do that, I'll proclaim all of my goodness. I'll remind you who I am. I'll proclaim all of my goodness before you. And so that's where we pick up. You should be in Exodus 34. I just gave you about five minutes to turn there. Exodus 34. Look in verse 5 with me. The Lord puts puts Moses in, in a safe place on the mountain. And, and here, it happens here. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth, and worshipped. And so the Lord proclaims his goodness. First, he says to Moses that he is a God who is merciful. Now, depending on what translation of the Bible you're looking at, it may say a different word. You may see compassionate there. The, the general idea of the word is this compassion, this mercy, this tenderness. Um, this, this word is, is used in, in a sense of God's mother-like love for, for a child. So those of you that are parents, this tenderness that you have for your children, this compassion that you have for your children, this is the sense of that first word. The second word, it says that he is gracious, this mercy and this kindness towards the people in desperate need of it. We say that, that grace is unmerited favor. It's, it's, it's actually more than that. It's not just unmerited favor. I, I don't know the, the way to say it. It's dismerited favor. We deserve the opposite. It's, it's not that we were neutral. It's that we deserved the opposite. And yet he, he pours out his favor on a people who have sinned. Then it says that he's slow to anger. Well, that simply means that he is patient. It takes a long time for his anger to be acted upon. He does not quickly lose his temper, uh, nor is he impulsive. Rather, the Lord bears with sinners, waiting for them to repent. And then it says that he is abounding in steadfast love and abounding in faithfulness is the way that construction works there. So the point is that God's love is wrapped up in this covenant that he has with his people. You might be faithless, but I'm faithful. That's the love of God that's being described here. 
That I, I, I'm going to hang on. Even though you're faithless, watch me. I'm going to be faithful. It's a never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love that is being described here. This is who God is. And this is the essence of who he is. This is his being. And what that means is what the text tells us is, is that that means that he is eager to forgive. It's almost as if God can't help it. It's almost as if because of who he is, he must forgive. It's like he has to. He has to forgive a people who have repented of their sins. That is how God has described himself to assure Moses, look, we're good. I'm going with you. The plan is back on. Here we go. God is deeply committed to his people, even in the midst of their sin. And that's what Israel needed to hear. So summarize, God's chosen people break the brand new covenant. God plans to kill them all. Moses intercedes. The Lord relents. The people repent. The Lord proclaims his goodness before Moses. That's what Jonah had in mind. Okay, back to Jonah. That's what he had in mind. When he's thinking about, okay, if I go preach this message to Nineveh, the Lord's going to act like he did at the golden calf story. He's going to forgive their sin. And that's not what Jonah wanted. See, Jonah understood that understanding the past helps us interpret our present. The Lord has acted a certain way in the past. We can come to expect him to act a certain way in our present. So let's connect these two stories. And when we do, we're going to find something really important for us sitting in this room right now. God was eager to forgive Israel. And God was eager to forgive Nineveh. Then that must mean that God is eager to forgive the world. Why, why would God choose Nineveh? Why, why would God send Jonah to Nineveh? He could have sent him to Damascus. He could have sent him to Tarshish. That would have saved some trouble. But that's not where he sent him. He sent him to Nineveh. Now, the text doesn't tell us why. But as I think about this, I think, okay, well, Nineveh is, is the biggest city. You know, it's, it's strong. It's powerful. It's got mighty walls. Nobody messes with Assyria. And not only that, it's not just the biggest. It's also the baddest. They were bad people. They were evil people. So it's almost as if the Lord is saying, why don't you go to Nineveh? I want to display to the world that it doesn't matter how big you are. There's nobody who's so big that they're outside of the sovereign control of God. And, and it doesn't matter how wicked, how bad you are. There is no one who is so wicked that they are outside of the goodness and the kindness of God. And so I think God chose to send Jonah to Nineveh because he wanted to show everyone God's goodness is intended for the whole world. He not only intends to be merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness to Israel, and not only does he intend to be those things to Nineveh, he also intends to be those things for the whole world. And that means a couple of things for us right now. First, God's goodness for the world 
means I have access to it. God's goodness for the whole world means that I have access to it. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 11, he says, note the kindness and the severity of God. Note the kindness and the severity of God. Note the severity of God. Think about God's severity. The people of Israel broke the covenant. The Lord's plan was not to wink at their sin or to just start fresh. I guess these people are incorrigible. Let's just start over. That was not his plan. His plan was to wipe them off the face of the earth. He takes sin seriously. You think about Nineveh. These people were far from God. You know, the Bible, the Bible says that they didn't know their left hand from their right, these people of Nineveh. They were far from God. And the Lord's plan? Destroy them. That is the severity of God. Well, you know, we, we look at Israel and we roll our eyes. Can you believe those foolish people? They, they walked away from the Lord not two weeks, not two months, not two months after they promised they wouldn't. Can you believe them? We look at Nineveh, look how bad those people are. They destroyed. They, they deserve to be destroyed. Uh, a friend of mine, Chase Bowers, recently said, We have an innate ability to notice the sins and shortcomings of others while being blind to our own. Another friend of mine named Jesus said, Take the log out of your own eye before you criticize the speck in your brother's. Do we not do the same things? Those of us who are near to God, we very easily walk away from him. And haven't we ourselves been far from God and walking in wickedness? And as we look at these stories, we consider the severity of God. He does not take sin seriously. Or he does take sin seriously. He, he does not wink at it. He doesn't play with it. Uh, the Lord doesn't sweep sin under the rug. It is a serious matter to the Lord. It is a life and death matter to the Lord. The Apostle Paul says, consider, note the severity of God. But then he says, note the kindness of God. Note the kindness of God. See, the Lord forgave the people of Israel, and the Lord forgave the people of Nineveh. And I want to tell you this morning that if the Lord can forgive the people of Israel, and if the Lord can forgive the people of Nineveh, then the Lord can forgive us too. And let, lest that sound like some trite little, I know that already kind of statement, I, I want you to consider at what cost. Consider at what cost the kindness of the Lord comes to us. There's a, a bit of a contradiction in Exodus chapter 34 because it says that the Lord is eager to forgive. He wants to forgive. And then it says in, in verse 7, it says, but he will by no means clear the guilty. How does that work? How does he forgive someone who's guilty and also at the same time not clear them? How does that work? And I believe that we don't really know how that works until we get to the New Testament. And we find when the Apostle Paul writes that he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See that it's in Jesus Christ that he bears the sin of the world when he died on the cross 
so that our sin can be on the one hand forgiven and on the other hand also paid for. I don't have to bear the weight of my sin because Jesus did. That is the price of forgiveness, the death of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the suffering of Christ. And so forgiveness is no trite matter. It is a foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. King David understood the kindness of the Lord. And in Psalm 103, he actually has this golden calf story in his mind also. In verse 8, it says, The Lord is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And then David, in the next few verses, explains what that looks like. Listen to this. Listen to this. Apply this to your life right now. He will not always scold, nor will he keep his anger forever. Listen to me. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor does he repay us according to our iniquities. But what does he do instead? As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. His loyal, never giving up, covenant kind of love. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us And as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. That is the kindness of the Lord. And the Apostle Paul tells us, don't just note his severity, note his kindness. So God's goodness for the whole, whole world means I have access to it. God's goodness for the whole world, number two, also means... That I must dispense it. That means that I receive it, and then I give it away. I receive it, then I give it away. We are dispensers of God's goodness. We are dispensers of God's goodness to other people in the way that we proclaim it. We are called by God to proclaim His goodness to the nations. There are people all over the world, people groups, Not just individuals, people, groups who have never heard the name of Jesus. They have never heard of the kindness of God. They're just like the people of Nineveh who don't know their right hand from their left. Uh, They're responsible for their actions, but they are in darkness. They need someone to come proclaim light to them. And it is our task to be dispensers of that grace. We are to rise and go. And going and giving and praying is what we are called to do for the nations. We are dispensers of God's goodness to others as we proclaim it to the nations, but also as we proclaim it to our neighbors. Writing a check and saying a prayer is a whole lot easier than proclaiming the goodness of God to your neighbors sometimes, isn't it? Your neighbors are the people who live next to you, but they're also the people in your family. And they're also the people that you work with. And they're also that that person at the gas station that you see every morning when you get your soda that you shouldn't be getting every day. That's bad for you. Um, Those are your neighbors and those are the people that we are called to dispense this grace, this proclamation of his goodness to. We, we We are dispensers of God's goodness in the way that we proclaim it. We are also dispensers of God's goodness in the way that we activate it to others. 
Here's what I mean by that. If we have received God's goodness, it is our task to also be those things to other people. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, Jesus said. If I have received mercy, it is my job, it is my responsibility, and it should be my delight to take that mercy and to give it to other people. Oh, we love to receive new mercies every morning from the Lord, don't we? Oh, his mercies are new every morning. I'm a moron. I'm a moron. But, it, man, it is so good that the Lord gives me new mercies every morning. Paul Tripp said, if you're greeted every morning with God's new mercies, shouldn't you greet people around you the same way? We are dispensers of God's goodness. What, let, let's, okay, we're going to start getting hard here. What about patience? What about patience? If the Lord has been patient with me, then then how could I be anything other than patient with other people? The fruit of the Spirit, the outworking of the Spirit in your life is love, joy, peace, patience. Oh, 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 we're going to get even more difficult here. What about the way that works with forgiveness? And the way that the Lord has forgiven me, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4, forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. How has God in Christ forgiven me? Oh, he went to great lengths to earn my forgiveness and or to earn forgiveness for me. Uh, he sacrificed so that I could be forgiven of my sin. And if I have been forgiven, and if God is eager to forgive me time and time and time again, then as a receiver of that forgiveness, then it is my task, my delight to dispense that forgiveness to other people. See, God's goodness for the world means I must, I must dispense it to other people in the way that I proclaim it, in the way that I activate it. But uh, we're we're going to go one step further. God's goodness for the world means that I must dispense it in the way that I apply it to myself. In the way that I apply it to myself. Now, uh, this this happened last night. I was up here working on my sermon, shouting to an empty room. And and when I got home, uh, I didn't have my bag. I had my my Bible and I had these notes. And I had my cup of water and my keys. And so I put all the things in one hand so I could have my keys to get in the house. And when I kind of got up, my arm came up, and I poked myself in the eye with my own sermon. <laughs> it hurts. It still hurts. Uh, it's not a paper cut. It's like a poke. But I po- listen, I poked myself in the eye with my own sermon. So, like, that's what I literally did, and then figuratively, I'm about to do that. Okay. Let's talk about self-condemnation. Let's talk about our self-talk. Now, I, I might just be talking to myself. I don't know. But I set high expectations for myself, oftentimes unreasonable expectations for myself. And when I fail to meet, the, inevitably fail to meet those expectations for myself, I, I do one of two things. I go off into a tailspin or a, a, 
you know, depression or something. Or, or, or then I go the other direction and I act like a, like a moron trying to, uh, trying to fix it so nobody will know that I didn't meet those expectations. I don't know if that's anybody else in the room, but these thoughts of self-condemnation, these, these, uh, thoughts of, uh, not being able to measure up. And I read the other day and it, it, when I read it, it, it sent me to the floor. Uh, this pastor in Colorado, Steve Cuss, he, he, he said this, what if I were at least as blank to myself, and, and insert whatever characteristic there, blank to myself as God is? What, what if I were as merciful to myself as God is to me? What if I were as gracious to myself as God is to me? What, what if I were as patient with myself as God is to me? And if, if you're like, if you're like me out there, listen. What if I were as forgiving of myself as God is of me? What, what would that kind of thought process, what would that do to our mental health? What would that do to the self-talk and the self-condemnation that goes on in our brains? What, what would that do to it? What if, what if I were as patient with myself as God is with me? I fall flat on myself, on my face, and I condemn myself over and over and over. But the Lord doesn't act that way with me. He's not harsh. He's not a cold shoulder. He never throws his hands up and rolls his eyes. This guy again. That's, that's not how the Lord treats me. He doesn't shout at me. Rather, he never quits. He never gives up. He helps me back up. He dusts off my knees. He says, let's try that again. That is the patience of the Lord that I receive. How, how can it be that I am less patient with myself than the Lord is with me? See, God's goodness for the world means that, that I'm a dispenser of it to other people in the way that I proclaim it, in the, in the way that I, I activate it in their lives, but also in the way that I apply it to myself. See, God's goodness for the world means I have access and it means that I've got to dispense it. The past helps us understand our current circumstances. If the Lord has acted in a certain way in the past, we can come to expect that he's going to act the same way in our present. Right now, in this moment, he is eager to forgive. He is patient. He is merciful. He is compassionate. He is gracious. He wants to forgive those who repent. See, God forgave Israel and God forgave Nineveh. And God wants to forgive us. Who are we to doubt that? Who are we to withhold that? The questions for you to consider, have you accessed this goodness? Have you, have you accessed this forgiveness that's being offered freely to you through the blood of Jesus Christ? Have you accessed that? Is there someone you need to proclaim this goodness to? Is there some way you need to facilitate that proclamation to the nations? Is there some way you need to proclaim it to a neighbor? Is there someone in your mind? Some of you just had a name come through your mind. I didn't say it. That was the Lord that said it. It wasn't me. 
Who do you need to forgive, though? Who do you need to be patient towards? Is it somebody else or maybe it's yourself? Let's pray. Lord, I wish I, I wish I could I wish I could communicate the heart you have for people. I don't have the words. But Lord, there's a whole host of people here who desperately need your goodness. There's a group of people maybe in this room or, or, or watching at home. There's people who have never, never received your forgiveness. Lord, I pray today they would take it. Lord, there's a group of people in this room that are withholding your goodness from other people because they've been wounded. Lord, bring about healing. And Lord, there's a group of people in the room who beat themselves up. That, that's not what you want for us. So Lord, come. Do, do your work among us. Show us your glory. Proclaim your goodness before us. Let us know that you're with us. Go with us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing. We're going to sing about God's faithfulness.